Good morning. This morning we find ourselves in the book of John in chapter 14. And before I read the couple verses, uh, just let me give you a a background here. Jesus was with his band of apostles, um, whose lives and witness are an extension, or will be an extension of his. And right now, the, the passage we're about to read, he is comforting them, reminding them why he is here and why he has come from uh, heaven and what he plans to do, um, his, his, his uh, purpose here on earth. And so will you join with me as we read God's holy word? Again, this is John 14, verses 1 through 7. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you really had known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's always an honor and a privilege to hear your word and your counsel. Some of the, so Lord, um, may the words of Pastor Ken and the meditations of Twilliger Community Church be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love mornings like this, dedicating uh, two children to the Lord and uh, recognizing that uh, children are a gift of God and recognizing that every child is unique and they're going to grow up to walk with God and love God and serve Him. And uh, so as we, as we dedicate these children this morning, uh, we recognize that they're just beginning a journey. And then in a few moments, uh, we're going to witness some young people who have been on the journey, not for a real long time, but relatively speaking, a short time. Uh, but in their years, they've come to meet God in a personal way through Jesus Christ. And they're in the process of discovery, discovering who Christ is coming to understand how to know Him and how to walk with Him and how to live uh, with Him and how to find the most rewarding, abundant, uh, joy-filled life that there's possible uh, on this earth. And so these that are being baptized today uh, have joined the group called Followers of the Way. Followers of the Way. People of the Way. Uh, Perhaps you knew that Christians have not always been called Christians. The term Christian appears first in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, in a place called Antioch, which is a a unique church plant. If you go back and kind of study the context, a church plant that grew and had a beautiful ethnic flavor to it, uh, a wonderful diversity of people in Antioch, just as the Lord blessed Antioch with many cultural backgrounds, I think he's also done that at TCC. And uh, we love it. We just love our diversity. One of our great blessings from God is, is uh, the way he, he has brought people from many different countries 
Uh, and the nations are among us, and we just love that. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, we hear the narrative of Saul before he becomes Paul the Apostle. And Saul was out to get the new believers. And he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for the cooperation in the arrest of the people of the way who were found in Damascus. And I think you can appreciate why they referred to themselves as people of the way. Notably, a reference to Jesus who said, I am the way. So they were followers of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So just before these wonderful young people come and acknowledge Jesus as the way through baptism, just allow me the wonderful privilege to underscore one of the great all-time verses that remind us of how to connect with God and how we can know God in a personal way by being followers of the way. And it's in that one verse that Pastor Ed read for us this morning. 14.6 of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, I think this is one of those sandpaper verses in the Bible. It can rub people the wrong way, depending on how you understand the person of Jesus Christ. Is this an outrageous assertion? This verse has probably caught people's attention over the centuries, but maybe never more than in the day in which we live. Because we live in an age of equality. We live in a day of endless options. You are free to take option A, option B, option C, option D, option Z if you live in America, or option Z if you live in Canada. Every option is good. And you have the freedom to choose your options. And after all, it's all the same in the end anyway. So the prevailing winds among us say, doesn't matter what option you take. And you have the freedom. That means a lot to our generation. You have the freedom. And then you get a verse like this. And uh, you have, uh, have to think through how a verse like this fits in today's world. Outrageous assertion? Well, let me start by suggesting that Jesus was never arrogant. He never came to put anyone down. He came as a servant. He was obedient to his father. There wasn't an ounce of pride in him. And the only reason that he was so clear that John 14 uh, was, was his purpose in life was because of his love. In his love, he didn't want anyone to miss the good news that life could be extremely purposeful and significant for each of us. So if he pulled punches and every option is equal, it would cause us to miss the life-changing message. And it would render his mission useless. Why come and die? 
He said what he needed to say so that we didn't miss out on the greatest message of all time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So why was he so clear? And why was he so bold? Well, consider, first of all, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Consider the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. On our street alone, the diversity of thought with respect to following the spiritual path up the mountain is a very broad spectrum. We have a neighbor across the street who's very traditional, very traditional, has followed her dogma through the years, her Christian heritage. She's probably very loyal to the doctrine that she has known through the years, and it's very clear. We have a gentleman who would claim to be an atheist, although he's had a church background, but has determined for now that believing in a God who created the world is just not for him. I do think he wants to make a difference in the world. In fact, I know he does. Perhaps he might refer to himself as a secular humanist. His desire would be to build a more humane society through his human gifts and his abilities. Others on our street were raised in a Christian environment. But somehow, through the years, the church has seemed irrelevant or boring, and they couldn't muster up enough energy to keep going. And others on our street represent different world religions. Quite a mixture. Just like the whole planet. We share common ground with many of the world's religions, especially when you look at the level of basic values and areas of morality. And as a result, we have a starting place for a, a respectful dialogue, which is so important. <laughs> and then you have Jesus, who made this incredible statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Sandpaper verse. And he says, all of this out of great love for all humanity. Even the phraseology is cause for us to stop and ponder. I am the way. Wonderfully bold. We hear some religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you how to find the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Some say, follow me and I'll show you how to find the truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. Some say, follow me, and I will help you find your life. And Jesus says, I am the life. I am eternal life. There is something wonderfully unique about Jesus. Other value and belief systems put a lot of stock on earning the good favor of God. They do things for God. They go on pilgrimages. They give alms to the poor. They avoid eating certain foods. They have to perform a certain number of good deeds. They are required to pray in a certain way because they recognize there is a God and in order to find favor with God, we need to get ourselves in a place where God is pleased with us and therefore He accepts us. So interesting how God, Jesus approaches this. 
He said that nobody could do anything to merit heaven. So you might as well stop trying. You can't make it on your own, regardless of how hard you try. Paul the Apostle said that we're all guilty. And there isn't a loophole for anyone. For he put it this way, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's not hard for me to believe, that I have come short, that I have failed to live up to God's expectations. I have felt that disconnection with God, uh, and sin separates us from God, and sin, our wrongdoing, separates us from a holy God. Sin's not the most popular word in the world today. Even though we would like to say, ah, sin doesn't exist. We see its reality all around us. We all know that this world is not as it should be. We all turn on our TVs at night and say, oh my goodness. Look what's going on around the world. This is not heaven. This is not a utopia. G.K. Chesterton once said, sin is the only theological concept that can be 100% proven. Just look around. Sin is why patient parents run out of patience with their kids. It's why we hurt ourselves uh, or take from others uh, or allow our selfishness to dominate. It's evident from the beginning war cries of a child. This is mine. And so it goes all through life. This is mine. This is mine. And no matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how we try to modify our behavior, we cannot somehow fix our sinful hearts. And God, by his very nature, must judge wrongdoing. Our wrongdoing has to be paid for. So how is our wrongdoing paid for? Well, Jesus came. Jesus stepped into our world and he said, I'll take care of that for you. I'll take the penalty that you should have paid I'll pay it for you. And when we have acknowledged that personally, that Jesus has paid the penalty, we become reconnected with God forever. And we say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my place. Thank you for forgiving my sin. And we invite him to come and live in us and take leadership of our lives. And we are reconnected, reunited with God forever. You've perhaps heard this described as do and done. There are those who are trying to earn their way to God. They're in the process of doing. This is what they do. It's the performance mode. Do as much as you can to win favor. But when you give yourself to Christ, you admit that you can never get to God on your own, so you accept what has been done for you, what has been done through Jesus Christ. That he came to us from heaven. That he was born as a baby. That he was the perfect God-man. And he gave his life on a cross. And it's on the cross that his amazing love and forgiveness is evident. He worked on our behalf. And now it's done. It's done. You no longer need to try to do something to please God. You simply accept what he's done. And it sounds so easy. We call it grace. We call it God's unmerited favor. 
It doesn't mean that we will never do anything in return for God. Uh, We do. But never to earn our forgiveness. In fact, when we receive His grace, we're motivated more than ever to serve Him, to bring our best, to be those who would take the towel and minister to the needs of the world. But it starts with the word done. Jesus paid the price on the cross, and it's done. It's done. And our response is to say, yes, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Secondly, consider the transforming work of Christ. Consider the transforming work of Christ. We live in such a diverse world. People have the right to believe whatever they want. Why would you believe in Jesus? Because his claims are validated. He lived a perfect life. There was no sin in his life. No one ever pointed to Jesus and accused him of sin. He lived a sin-free life. And if someone was going to die for us, their life would have to be such that they were qualified to take our sin, that they could come before a holy God and become our substitute. Jesus is the fulfillment of century-old prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came to this earth, predicting he would come, predicting, in fact, he would die for our sins. Those are his credentials. When he lived on this earth, he performed great miracles in front of thousands of people. He was more powerful than nature itself. He could speak to the wind and the waves, and they would cease their turbulence. He could touch a sick person and raise them up from a bed of affliction. He demonstrated his mastery over death by bringing Lazarus back to life after four days in the grave. And then when he died, he himself was placed in a grave. And he fulfilled his own prediction by rising from the grave. He was raised to life, resurrected. And there were witnesses on many occasions. Once as many as 500 people witnessed that he was alive. His life and resurrection was transforming to the disciples and to the early Christians. They were radically changed. They were empowered and energized to go out and to witness to the world that Jesus truly is the Son of God. So our Savior, our Lord, is alive today. Bono, the lead singer of the rock group U2, was asked if the claim of Jesus' divinity is far-fetched. Here's what he said. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying that I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take, but don't mention the M word. Because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these Romans. But actually, I am the Messiah. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, 
or a complete nutcase. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, that's far-fetched. His life was transforming to his followers back in the early days of the church and still today, and still today. The same people who watched Jesus die began to gather together again. Initially, they were afraid, afraid of what happened, that ha- what happened to Jesus would actually happen to them as well. But after the resurrection, things were incredibly different. They were emboldened by Jesus. In fact, they began to call him Lord Jesus. And the word for Lord is the word curious. It's not simply a word for respect. It is a recognition that there's one true God. And Jesus was the true God. He was Lord. Lord of all. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, his followers started to call him curious. Lord. And the transformation that came to their lives. Many of them left their occupations. They sold their possessions. They devoted the rest of their lives to one simple message. That Jesus died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. And on the third day he was raised to life. The distinctiveness of the Christian faith is the fact that our leader is alive. He's alive today. And he's absolutely unique among all other leaders. He is the one and only resurrected Messiah. And Jesus, the Son of God, offers us a relationship with a loving God, our Heavenly Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. So Jesus is not just your way to find God. He is God come to find you. He has come to find you. Even today, no matter what is going on in your life, He's looking for you. He wants to be found. And He can be found in Jesus Christ. He finds us in the dark and messy places of life. He finds us in places filled with sin and guilt and shame. But he comes to you and he says, I love you. I want to be with you so much that I would rather die than lose you. So it is not out of arrogance and pride or putting anyone else down that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I tell you this because I love you. I tell you this because I want to be in a forever relationship with you. So it is a high calling, a wonderful privilege to be called followers of the way or Christians. And now you're going to witness four young people who are identifying with this very same Jesus. This very same Jesus. And they're giving themselves to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So, but why baptism? Why Why this baptistry here this morning? Because the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, asked us to do that. That would be enough in itself because the Master said, 
be baptized. So that would be just enough because he said so. But we learn from people like Peter and Paul that baptism is a response to saying yes to Jesus. On the first day of the church, we call it the day of Pentecost, many came to place their faith in Christ. And as a mark of their trust and obedience, they were immediately baptized. So it's a mark of trust. It's a mark of belief. And Paul reminds us in Romans 6 that baptism is our way to identify with Christ. That just as he died on a cross and was buried and rose again, that we have a similar experience. That our death is to our sin. We say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. I change my mind, my direction. And that's symbolized by being buried in the water that you'll see this morning. The candidates will go under the water, recognizing their death to sin. Not that they'll be free from sin for the rest of their lives, but this is the mark of a new beginning in Jesus Christ. And then they will rise from the water like Jesus rose from the grave. And... And it's their beginning to walk in new life in Jesus Christ. So we bless them today as they take this very important step of baptism. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we pray. And as we pray for the candidates. And if you'd just bow with me for a moment. And if you've never met Christ personally, you can say yes to him this morning by simply acknowledging that he is the Son of God. You can say to him in the quietness of your heart this morning, Lord, forgive my sin. I believe that you are God incarnate, the Messiah. And I invite you to come in and be my Savior and the Lord of my life. And I want to know you. So if you've never made that decision before, you can, just, you can do that in the quietness of your heart this morning. And so, Lord, we want to say this morning, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are unique among all others and that you love us and that you truly are the way, the truth, and the life. We've discovered that personally. And, Lord, we pray that these candidates today, these young people, will experience the joy of Christ through the rest of their lives. Lord, we know that there are ups and downs. We don't know all the things that come to us in life. But Lord, here's where they start. They start with you. So bless them in their new beginning and their witness today that they are followers of the way through Jesus Christ. Amen.